there's a problem, maybe you can call it a tension point, in Nicole's and I's marriage that we have not been able to solve. And since she's out of town and can't defend herself today, I thought I'd tell you about it. You can hear my side of the story. There's something we, we just can't figure out. And this is the issue. I am a one and done guy when it comes to movies and shows. I just want to see it one time. I don't want to see it again. I don't need to repeat The Office or Seinfeld or Friends. I don't need to re-see any movies or anything like that. I don't need it because I know how it's going to end. There's no point. Now, my wife has this weird appreciation for watching things a thousand times over. And I have been subjected to a cruel and unusual form of punishment every single December since our marriage. And it is re-watching this movie right here. Don't you dare cheer for that. This is way too much enthusiasm for this movie. Now, don't get me wrong. I appreciate this movie. This is not a watch every single year type of movie, though. Some of you, this is your Christmas tradition. And Nicole and I are figuring it out. It's a journey we're going on. You can pray for us. But I will say this. As I have grown in age and maturity and walked with the Lord, I feel like I've gotten a little bit better at appreciating the finer details of watching something more than once. I finally appreciate that there are some subtleties and nuances that you can really see that you don't see the first time. And this is why there are certain movies in particular that have just stood the test of time. They're like iconic for our culture. And I need, I need participation here. Otherwise, this illustration is not going to work at all. So can you help me out here just for a minute? If you, I'm going to show you an image of some movies. If you know what the movie is, can you just shout that out and help me out with this? Okay, so first one. This should be an easy one. Name the movie. Okay, pretty easy one. Okay, let's go to the next one. Maybe a little bit harder for some people. Okay, okay, good job. Um, one of my personal favorites. Go to the next one. Classic. It's a Wonderful Life. Okay, good. You caught it. You caught it. Good. Now, we'll go a little bit more current. See if you know it. You should definitely know this one. Come on, right? Easy. Now, I slipped this one in because I really think it is a classic. But let's see if you guys see, know which one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And then finally, nice softball pitch to close it out. This one should be very straightforward. Okay. There was not a single movie this, this group struggled with. You knew every single one. And there's a reason. These movies are classics. I mean, they have shaped the hearts and imaginations of our culture for 50 and even almost 100 years with some of those movies. I mean, think about it. These are the types of movies that made you afraid to go to the beach for a couple of years after seeing them. Like, these are the types of movies, if you're the right age, you wanted to be an archaeologist for a short period of time in your life because of these movies. My kids, just this last week, were playing with lightsabers. That's a, that's a series that started 50 years ago, and it's still working in my kids' lives today. I'll tell you this right now. Nobody's going to be talking about 50 first dates in 100 years. No, nobody's going to care about that movie because it's not a classic there's something different about certain stories in our culture that just capture us in a different way. And I, I'm saying all this for a purpose, because this is setting up where we're going the next couple weeks. Because we're starting a new series this morning we're simply calling Summer Classics. Now, there are iconic movies, there's iconic television series, but there are also some iconic stories in the Bible. What's interesting is we believe that every single word of the Bible is inspired by God. It's, it's all important for his purposes, but you can't deny the fact that there are certain stories in the Bible that just capture our hearts and our imaginations in a different way. They just have a different level of prominence in the way 
we think about, even relate to God, and the way we even talk about just walking with him in general. And what we wanted to do these next couple weeks is look at some of the most famous stories of the entire Bible because you really can get a lot of new things by watching something more than once. And I really believe God has some fresh insights for us out of these stories, things that maybe you've never even thought of or seen before, even though you've heard these stories a million times over. Even if you have never been to church before, you've never cracked open a Bible, I can guarantee you, you've heard every single one of these stories. You know how every single story is going to end. And yet you still have to listen to me for the next 35 minutes. Okay, but I promise we're going to get something new out of this. And I wanted to start this series out with a real banger. One that I knew everybody was going to appreciate and know, and it is the story of David and Goliath. The ultimate, ultimate showdown. I mean, this is such a big story. We still use it in our vernacular today. We talk about being in David and Goliath situations. And as much as you may know the ending already, I think God has something fresh for us today. So we're going to dig into it right from the top and see what God has to say to us. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. I am in verse 1. And let's see what happens here. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. Okay, the scene's getting set here. We get introduced to this group of people called the Philistines. Now this was a nation at this time that was famous for its sensuality. And they were actually particularly famous for their brutal, bloodthirsty military expansion. Okay, this, this is a tough group of people. But one thing that people sometimes don't notice about this moment in history is it says they were assembled in Judah. Okay, this is not some face-off of equal world powers at the time. This is an enemy invasion. And they have already crossed the threshold of the front door. They are in the house. And they are coming in. And they are encroaching on Israel this time. at this time, which is a very brittle, fragile nation that has very weak leadership, and they are about to bring this entire nation into a pile of dust and ashes right under their foot. This is the scene that's getting set. And it says this in verse 2 as it unfolds. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley in between them. So you've got these two forces. They've now met each other. Get typical military strategy, get the high ground. And they got this valley in between. And they're just waiting to see who's about to make the move. What's about to happen? What's about to go down? And we see how it goes down right here in the next verse. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. Now, this is an important line right here. This is the first and only time we ever see this word champion in the entire Bible. And what it actually literally means is a man in between. And a very common approach to just military warfare at this time is you would choose a man to stand in between you and the enemy army. And he would be your representative. And he would put his whole life on the line to either deliver you or die for you. Because if he won, he represented your whole nation and army, and it counted as a victory for everybody. But if you lost, you all got that loss together too. And so the Philistines, they just picked out their champion to stand in between them and Israel. Now Goliath, he's not just some dude who's watched some UFC videos on YouTube. <laughs> Look what it says about him. He was over nine feet tall. 
Now, I know I just lost some people right there. You're like, okay, Brian, this is why the Bible makes great fairy tales but really bad history. Because, come on, nine feet? At least the writer could have brought them down a couple feet to make this realistic. Now, I can understand that struggle, but let me at least acknowledge something here. There is historical evidence of giants at this time in ancient history. There are actually even entire populations of extremely large people that lived at this. So we have some evidence of that. But also, just a few weeks ago, the number one pick for the NBA draft was this guy, Victor Wembignata. He is seven and a half feet tall. That's him next to another professional basketball player. There's some large dudes. Now, even in recent history, since we started recording world records and everything, the tallest recorded man since we've started really tracking it is a guy named Robert Wadlow. He stood at 8 foot 11 inches. So I think it's at least worth acknowledging, while it's very rare and even unlikely, it is not out of the realm of possibility for someone to have just won the genetic lottery in a massive way and be huge. And Goliath, he's an exception. That's why they're pointing out this detail. So it's rare. This guy's big. But we actually get some more detail about him here in the next verse. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam. It's like a massive pole. And he tipped, and tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. Now, why did I read all that to you? Why does it even matter? If you read through the Bible at any point in time, particularly the Old Testament, this is a little Bible trivia for you, many times, and this is the Hebrew writing style, it's very sparse with detail. So you'll read through it and it'll be like, Adam and Eve ate the fruit. God was mad. Like it's very kindergarten reading level. Anytime you see a writer give you extreme detail, they're trying to get you to lean in. And the writer is trying to help us appreciate the magnitude of this moment. Not only is this guy massive physically, he has every piece of advanced technology when it comes to military warfare. He is on the extreme end of innovation. Goliath is a human tank compared to Israel's twig. He is an impenetrable force. Nobody is taking a guy like this down. And so we get this picture. The Philistines just chose their champion. I would draft that guy to my team too. And now they're basically starting to taunt Israel, like, okay, where's your champion at? Because this is about to go down. And even Goliath gets involved in this taunting. Verse 10, then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. This is not just some taunt, okay? This is not just smack talk. This is a massive offense. When he says, I defy, this is a curse of spiritual proportions. He is giving these people the verbal middle finger. He is spitting in God's face when he says this. These are, these are fighting words. Okay, stirring this up real big time. So we got this massive fighter cursing God. What's about to happen? And the response is probably what you would expect. It says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were terrified and deeply shaken. Now, can we at least appreciate this on one level? That's a very understandable emotional response to this moment. Because anybody going up against this guy is going to end up like packaged meat. That's just what's going to happen. There's an interesting nuance, though, to this story. See, 
Saul and this army are standing in a very important place. Because hundreds of years ago, God had a man in this very spot, and he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and nobody's going to take it away from you. And hundreds of years later, Saul is standing on the very fulfillment of God's promises. He is standing on God coming through on everything he said he would do. And instead of having a moment where he stirred up his courage and said, no, this is our land. Nobody's taking it away. We're going to step into this thing because God already made a promise. They're shrinking back. And they're retreating in fear. Now, you can criticize Saul all you want, but I think it'd be more fair to say we have a lot more in common with him than we'd like to admit. Because how often do you face circumstances that are intimidating and even seem too big? Instead of stepping forward in faith, you shrink back and you hesitate. I think about so many times in my life when I retreated back and I hesitated. There were actually colleges I didn't apply to because I'm like, they're just going to reject me anyways. Why do I even want to waste the paper on a rejection letter? There were even scholarships I passed on because I'm like, why would they even give it to me? I remember even specific opportunities people even offered to give me, and I'm like, I would just fail at it anyway, so why even try? So many of us lose the battle before we even start it. And the temptation is sometimes we actually think we're safer by prioritizing our own self-preservation. That's what we think. And yet what we realize is that's actually putting us in an even more vulnerable position. You, you got to really think about it. Some of you guys, you're shrinking back right now. There's something in your life that God is asking you to step into, and you're hesitating. You're not having the hard conversation you're supposed to have. You're not dealing with the mess that you got to clean up. And you're just hoping maybe it's going to resolve itself, or because procrastination always works, right? We're trying to fix our problems. What are you hesitating on right now? What's there a little bit of fear in you? Because you're wondering if the outcome is going to be worse on the other side. In this moment, Saul has completely forgotten the power, the presence, and the very promises of God. And it's causing him to step back in fear. It's causing him to hesitate. Now, this is a total dead end. They are about to be smashed under the foot of Goliath, and the entire history of Israel is about to be erased in this moment. This is the end of the line for this entire country. And then the story takes a very weird turn. And it says this in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Now why are we even talking about this kid? Everybody in here, you know something about David. At this moment in time, he's about a teenager, and he is so insignificant that a chapter before this, his dad forgets about him. You know you're not special when your own dad is like, what's that kid's name? I don't even know who this kid is. There is nothing about David up to this point that we've seen that shows any real potential in his life, that he's on any type of special trajectory. So why even bring him up at all? And even the next verse shows this even more, how insignificant this kid really is. Verse 17, now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. David's not showing up as some warrior. 
He's Uber Eats. He's the food delivery guy. He's got a Pizza Hut sign on top of his car. This is David. He's delivering cheese. His dad sees nothing in him worth noting. His brothers are completely overlooking him. They're like, okay, just give him some food to bring to the guys. This is all this kid is good for at this point in his life. And yet, nobody saw it at this moment. Not even David himself. But he was stepping into the battle of his life. And David was stepping into a divine opportunity. You have to understand how God works because this is going to shape the way you live your life. Divine opportunity often presents itself as ordinary. Put that line up on the screen. God's moves in your life, these providential circumstances, so often they just come across as daily drudgery. It's like the mundane. You think it's another Tuesday. But God is shaping history through your life. You think that was just a random coincidence running into that person. And yet God is trying to steer you towards his supernatural, eternal purposes on your behalf. You think it's just another poopy diaper. But God is setting up a generational legacy for your life. You see this as just trying to pad your resume and take another step in your career. And God is moving you towards leaving an impact far beyond your own life. God-sized opportunities are often disguised as daily drudgery. It just feels like the mundane. It's the daily grind. And yet God is often positioning and moving people towards his divine destiny he has for them. I'm wondering, what are some of those things in your life? Because if you want divine opportunities, you got to be willing to deliver the cheese. you got to be willing to put the pizza hut sign on top of your car. Jesus said, faithful with little, faithful with much. And some of us in here, you got to recalibrate and start getting serious about just some of your daily, ordinary stuff. Some of us in here, you just got to start showing up to work on time. You work from home and you're late. <laughs> you just got to start working on that. Some of the students in the room, I know school is a grind. It's not always fun. And it just feels like exhausting. But I'll just give you a side note. Adulting ain't all it's cracked up to be. So just stay a kid as long as you can, trust me. But right now, your responsibility, your cheese, it's homework. It's school. That is the responsibility that God has placed in front of you. It may be the daily grind of just kids and raising them. It's career stuff. It's just maintaining the responsibilities of your life. But you have to understand, David was willing to deliver the cheese. He was faithful with the little things, and that allowed him to get positioned for divine opportunities. And some of you, just by being faithful with the life God has given you, is going to allow you to be placed in positions for him to move powerfully in your life. What's the cheese for you? you got to start delivering it.
But now, David has a very interesting response to the situation he encounters. He says this in verse 26. Who is this pagan Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now pause. David and the Israelite army are in the exact same location. They're experiencing the exact same moment in history. They're looking at the exact same circumstance. And Israel sees a giant that's too big to fail. And yet David sees a target that's too big to miss. I have a, a friend who lives here in Colorado. And he's actually one of my best friends. And we had breakfast just the other day. And we're just catching up on work and life and everything. And he, he works in real estate. And so he's telling me just about what's going on in his business and stuff. And he said, Brian, it's the weirdest thing. He said, I get all these calls from these people all the time who are just desperate to dump their houses off on me. He's like, they're like, whatever you can do, just, I just want cash. I want to get out of this thing. This place is a mess. And he's like, I go and I check out the houses. And usually they are kind of dirty. They haven't been kept up. They need some definite TLC. And he, he, he's a good Christian dude. So he's like, I'm trying to help these people out and say, we can get this fixed up for you. And you can, you can make a decent profit. We can help you out. But they're like, no, no, no. I just don't even want to deal with hassle. It's too much of a headache. Just, just give me the cash and I'm out. He's like, that is the line I get all the time. So he's like, okay, I guess I'll do that. And so what he does is he buys these houses, fixes them real quick, and flips them for a massive profit. And he makes millions of dollars every single year doing this. Now, the reason he's able to do that is because he sees differently. He's got different eyes on the exact same situation these people are facing. Because they see a hopeless dump that they can't get out of. And he sees a golden opportunity. And so he makes millions of dollars doing it. David sees differently. He has a totally different set of eyes for how he's interpreting his own environment. This is a massive theme throughout the whole Bible. This is a very big deal to God. 2 Corinthians 5. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Different eyes. Hebrews 11. Faith is assurance about what we do not see. So this is a very paradoxical thing for how faith works. If you are serious about following Jesus and walking in his ways, it means you are going to have to live with a very different lens for your life. It's like moving from black and white still images to full 4K color video. It's a totally different approach to seeing. And if you are only interpreting your life through your eyes and what you see and experience, there are gaping holes in your vision. You are completely missing what is going on around you. David sees with God's eyes. And because he has the proper vision... He's not cowering away in fear. Because all he sees is a small man compared to God. He's not concerned at all. What lenses are you using for your life? How do you see? So many people I talk to, their lens is just the fear lens. Everything is a threat. Everything is a potential disaster. It's always how it can go wrong. That's the only way you see your entire life. Worry, 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 fear. Now, if 
if there's one thing I can give you for adjusting your lenses, there's so many things you can do, but if there's one thing that I think can make the most difference for you to start calibrating your vision with God, it's getting very serious about getting in this. There's something about getting in God's word and reading the Bible where every day it just adjusts your vision just a little bit so you can see the way God sees. Because if you do this, you'll come across lines like this, that suffering produces perseverance. Or you'll read a line like, God will never forsake you. Or you'll even see lines like, God is working all things out for good. How different would your life go if you even just believed those three things? What if you saw the suffering, the struggles of your life just through those three verses? That's a different lens. And so some of you today, the, the one thing you can do is you leave here today and say, I got to get my vision corrected. I got to start seeing the way God wants me to see. Now, David has some words for this guy now. And he says this in verse 45. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. There's a, there's a guy named Dan Allender. He's a really famous psychologist. He had an interesting quote that I think connects with this well. He says, fear is our response to uncertainty about our resources in the face of danger. Now think about this. David is acknowledging Goliath's resources right now. He's like, oh, I see how big you are. I see all the military weaponry that you have available to you. So he is acknowledging the resources. Israel's got nothing like this. This is not a fair fight. And the thing I think is interesting about the Dan Ellender quote is that pretty much is fear. You face some situation where you don't feel like or know that you don't have the resources to face. And so you see the gap between what needs to happen and your ability to fulfill it. And that's when the fear starts to stir around. Now, do you notice how David responds to Goliath's resources, though? He doesn't say, oh, I see your weapons, but I'm about to outdo you. I got a slingshot. So what do you think about that, Goliath? You're about to learn a lesson in physics when this rock comes up at your face at 75 miles an hour. He doesn't say anything about, well, just wait, because I got weapons that are forged out of gold and all diamonds or whatever. No, he says, my weapon, my ultimate resource is not some tool, is not even some sling. It is a name. It is a name. He says, I'm coming at you in the name of the Lord Almighty. Now, the literal translation of this is the Lord of hosts. It's actually a military term that David's using. He's saying, I'm coming at you with a massive fighting unit, an entire army, actually the Lord of armies. And not just the Lord of armies. He's saying, my God is the general of the armies of heaven. And he has never lost a single battle. And he never will. God doesn't know how to lose. He literally, it's not in his vocabulary. And so David's like, oh, you think that javelin's going to help you in this battle? You're in for a rude awakening. And that's why David has such confidence to say this in verse 47. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is 
Whose is it? Whose battle is it? I appreciate the enthusiasm from second service right now. And he will give all of you into our hands. Some of you have to hear this today. It's not your battle. It's not your fight. Some of you in here, you are freaking out about that issue you have with that person, trying to figure out how you're going to solve it. It's not your fight. You can't fix it. It's not on you. Some of you are obsessing about this situation. You're Googling it to death. You've been on WebMD for 45 minutes last night, diagnosing yourself. It's not your battle. Some of you are carrying the weight of trying to produce resources that you don't have to fight a fight that God hasn't even asked you to fight. And so some of you need to just be set free today and leave knowing it's not my battle. It's not my fight. It's not on me to win this thing. And now, David is about to step into this. He's like, I know who's fighting this fight. And so in verse 48, it says, As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. Direct hit. That's some good accuracy right there. The stone sank into his forehead, ew, and he fell face down on the ground. This giant is face ground in the, face in the dirt. Now, I could stop there, but I have to just add this extra line here because this, this is good stuff. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. That's the most gangster thing I have ever read in my life. Are you kidding me? Knocks the guy in the face with a rock. He's face down in the ground, takes his own sword, and chops his head off. This kid's got ice in his veins. Unbelievable. And yet against all odds, against the giant who was too big to fail, God, through a punk, pimply teenage kid, delivers a massive victory, saves a nation, and sets this kid's life on a trajectory that changes history forever. I'm telling you, our God knows how to win. It doesn't matter what he's using. He can have a kid with a sling, and he will knock down anything in his way. This is how God fights. He doesn't lose. He doesn't know how to lose. And God completely transforms everybody's expectations for what was going to happen in this moment. And we're even still talking about it today. Now, this is the moment in the message when you would expect me to say something along these lines. Now go be like David. Go get you some stones and a sling. Knock those giants down in your life. You cut their heads off because ain't no giant going to get in your way of what God has for you. And I might even get a golf clap out of you guys for that. Some of you might even be a little bit inspired for about five seconds. And then you'd go home. And tomorrow morning... Those nine-foot giants in your life are going to punch you right in the face. And you're going to be right back to reality. Because just own it right now. 
More of the time than not, we're like Saul in the army. We're not like David. We are freaked out. We're intimidated. We're stressed. We're full of anxiety about all the unknowns and the issues of our lives. And I totally understand it because some of us in here, you are facing giants that are way bigger than you, that you don't have the resources to handle. You know, I, I consider it such a privilege to pastor this church along with the rest of our staff. I mean, it's such a privilege to me. I wish I could know every single person super closely, but the people I do get to walk with and know, I, I just always appreciate walking with them. But even just in the last week or two, there's people in our church right now going through a divorce. That's a massive giant. It's too much. There's people in our church who have lost kids in the last couple weeks. That's an that's a, that's a impossible giant to overcome. I've been talking to some people in our church who just got laid off recently, and the job market is not really like it used to be, and the financial pinch is just getting tighter and tighter every single day. And there are just people with instability in their families, in their lives, relational drama, loss, diagnoses, I mean, the giants are huge. And so to me, it's very understandable that so many times in our lives we would feel just a sense of fear and discouragement and weight because we can't face these fights. It's too much. This is what you've got to understand about how God works, though. You see, God in this moment does not send a cheerleader. He doesn't send somebody to say, oh, you can do it. Get in there. You can handle the fight. You got this. Rah, rah, rah. He doesn't do that. Because he knew they'd still get pummeled into a fine dust. God doesn't even send a good example. He doesn't send somebody to show up and say, okay, here's how you take Goliath down. Here's the angles, and here's how it happens, and you guys got to get in your bad lines. You got this, okay? Here's the game plan. He doesn't give him a game plan. God has a totally different approach to helping you overcome giants in your life. And what God sends is a substitute. He sends someone who will stand in between. He sends a champion. He sends a champion no one expected. A boy delivering cheese. And yet, this was a boy willing to risk his life on behalf of an entire nation. This is the truth. You can't defeat Goliath. He is too big for you. You don't have the resources. You will be pummeled into a fine dust. So a pump-up speech ain't going to help you. A good example cannot save you. But you know what can save you? A champion. Someone to stand in between. Someone to fight on your behalf. And you have one. Because the reason the story of David is such a classic is not because it's a good story. It's timeless because it reveals a timeless truth about you. Because many years later, 
God would send another young man. And he wasn't wearing armor. He wasn't wielding a sword. He didn't come from some fancy palace. He was not what anybody expected in a champion. And yet he came to wage war against the greatest giant you will ever face, and that is death itself. And he used a weapon that nobody would have expected. He was nailed to a cross. And in that moment when everybody thought that Jesus lost the battle, he rose three days later and defeated death itself, chopping its head off once and for all, rising in victory. And so you need to hear me today. You have a champion. And he didn't just save you at the risk of his life. He saved you at the cost of his life. And he achieved the greatest victory on your behalf. He stood between you and death. And now you are standing today where not even death can take you down. If you have victory over death, what else are you possibly going to face that's a bigger giant than that? There is nothing you're going to face that Jesus has not already handled. He's your true champion. He is your king. He is the Lord Almighty, and he wants to fight on your behalf. So many people, they call David and Goliath an underdog story, which is so dumb. If you are in a ring fighting and God is on your team, you're not an underdog. Actually, you have the odds completely stacked in your favor. So you need to know... You're never an underdog. You always have the odds stacked on your side. And you need to know today, the battle is the Lord's. And he is the Lord of heaven's armies. And he always wins. So we're going to pray in just a moment. Worship team's going to come out. I need to talk to a few groups of people here before we sing this song, which fits so well with this message. Some of you in here, you are a believer in Jesus. You call yourself a Christian. But you are living in fear. Every time God's trying to place you in a divine opportunity, you hesitate. Because you don't recognize it that way. You only see how it can go wrong. And some of you, you need to refill your courage today and stand on God's promises and know about his presence because he promises to fight for you. So you have no reason to live in fear. Christians should be defined by their courage and their confidence in the living God. You need to start living that way in everything you face. Some of us here too, you need to get in the ring. You see, God already had the battle won, but David still had to get in there and fight the fight. It wasn't his battle, but he still had to be in the ring. Some of you guys, there's some fights you got to get in the face of right now. There's some battles you need to get in the ring for. God's promised the victory, but you still got to get in there. Right? Again, Christians are not the ones who are supposed to back away from this stuff. But let me talk to just even another group of people. You might be here, and you're not convinced about Jesus or any of these things. And we're so glad to have you. I want you to keep exploring and searching. But let me tell you this right now. You need a champion. You do not have what it takes to handle all the giants you're going to face in your life. You don't have the resources. And your life might be going fine right now, 
But at some point, you're going to be standing face to face with a nine-foot giant. And you're not going to be able to handle it. And there is one giant, I promise this is not a threat, it's just an honest reality we have to face. There's one giant that is marching towards every single one of us at a much faster pace than we would like to admit. And that giant is death. Every single one of us is going to have to face it. And Jesus is reaching out to you right now saying, let me be your champion. I've already won that battle. <laughs> All right? Let me just hand you the victory. And if I've defeated that, I want to walk with you and help you defeat every other thing you're going to face in your life too. So some of you here today, this is a perfect opportunity for you to say, Jesus, I need you to be my champion. I need you to stand in between me and the stuff I'm facing. I need your strength. I need your power. I need your help. And when I pray, that is a perfect opportunity for you to reach out to him. And he will not disappoint you. Whatever battles you face, he will bring out the victory, maybe in unexpected ways, but our God does not lose. So let's pray together right now. Lord, we praise you today. You can take a kid in a slingshot and change history forever. That's our God. The same God who hears us right now in this moment. And Lord, I know we often get paralyzed by fear and frustration and discouragement because of all the things we're facing in our daily lives. I pray, Lord, for a fresh dose of courage and confidence in this place. Lord, fill us with just that undeniable confidence in your promises, in your power, in your very presence in our lives. We have a God who does not lose. Help us live in that way. For those of us in here who are, who are hesitant about certain fights that we have to face, certain battles that are in place, Lord, I just, again, fill us with fresh hope, fresh confidence in you. And for anybody in here, who has not had that moment where you've been trying to fight your fights your own, you've been trying to use your own resources, this is your opportunity to say, Jesus, be my champion. Be the Lord of heaven's armies in my life. I need you to bring about victory over sin in my life, over the fear in my life. Invite him in right now, say, Jesus, come in, be my champion. And Lord, I pray for anybody reaching out to you that you would honor their sincere effort of praying to you, that they would sense your presence, maybe for the first time or a fresh in a long time. But God, for all of us, we declare your victory today because, you know, the battle is yours. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.